the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we're going to talk with Melissa Henson. She's with the Parents Television Council, Television and Media Council. On the entertainment media's efforts to normalize the sexualization of children on screen, we're going to talk specifically about one Netflix program, which I have to tell you, I'm a little nervous about because to explain what we're referencing would be we'd lose our license. I, in good conscience, couldn't talk openly about some of the things that are part of this particular program. But anyway, we're going to try to work our way around it when she joins us at the top of the second hour of today's program. And we'll also share a conversation with Johnny Moore. He's the author of The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. More on that uh, later in the second hour of today's program. I want to remind you, Focus on the Family and 93.9 KPDQ want to encourage you and your family to participate and bring your Bible to School Day coming up Thursday, October 7th. Well, it's a, a day when thousands of students will share God's hope with their friends by, well, you guessed it, bringing their Bibles to school. That can be a bit of a challenge for some kids, depending on your school and your classmates and so on, but we want to encourage you to do it. Plus, when you sign up, you're going to be automatically entered for a chance to win a trip to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. So don't miss out. Sign up and get a free guide at kpdq.com keyword Bible or on KPDQ, the mobile app. Again, that's coming up on Thursday, October 7th. Well, taking a look at some of the day's news, Senator Manchin, he stared down the president and his uh, party's leaders, declaring he cannot support trillions of dollars in spending. Senator Joe Manson is a Democrat from West Virginia. He said uh, Wednesday that he would not support spending trillions more on social programs, highlighting an ongoing dispute between the moderate Democrat and party leaders that threatens to derail the negotiations on the president's $3.5 trillion spending bill. I think everyone is admitting today that it's no longer a $3.5 trillion spending bill. It's something below that. Where that number um, sets remains to be seen. Well, Senator Manchin said that he has made clear to the president and Democratic leaders that it would be the definition of fiscal insanity to greenlight more spending despite funding shortages for Social Security and Medicare. He also cited concerns about the potential impact of inflation or to inflation and the shaky U.S. economic recovery. While I am hopeful that common ground can be found that would result in another historic investment in our nation, I cannot and will not support trillions in spending or an all-or-nothing approach that ignores the brutal fiscal reality our nation faces, Manchin went on to say. There is a better way, and I believe we can find it if we are willing to continue to negotiate in good faith, end quote. White House officials have described the talks as constructive, though few substantive details have emerged. Manchin is yet to specify a top-line number for a pared-down spending bill that would uh, have his support, although he's hinted at about 1.5. He says that, for him, is already a compromise. He's gone from zero to 
the 1.5. In other developments, so White House spokesperson Saki, Jen Saki, acknowledged the Biden spending plan carries a cost. Well, that's good to know that she's acknowledging there is a cost, but says the wealthy will pay more to cover the expense. Well, they can't cover all of the expense if you've done the math. Well, the views Joy Behar exploded on Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, calling them the enemies of the democracy, which is actually a constitutional republic. But that's the subject for another day. President Biden desperately needs a win, but the left is holding his plan hostage. We'll see what happens. Well, Senator Kirsten Sinema, or Cinema, uh, the Democrat from Arizona, reiterated on Thursday that she will not support a $3.5 trillion spending bill in the latest sign of discord among key Democrats as the president scrambles to rally support for his signature piece of legislation. Interestingly, he met with dissenters today, but uh, it, his meetings have been characterized not as him attempting to use the bully pulpit to try to um, wrestle them to his side, but rather as a listening session. Senator Sinema, they went on to say, said publicly more than two months ago before Senate passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill that she would not support a bill costing $3.5 trillion. Her office said in a statement shared on her Twitter account. In August, she shared detailed concerns and priorities, including dollar figures, directly with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the White House. Claims that the senator has not detailed her views to the president and the senator's are false. Well, Biden, uh, end quote, by the way, Biden has personally met with her and fellow uh, moderate Democrat holdout Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia on multiple occasions this week to negotiate an agreement on the spending bill. With a razor thin majority, the president needs every Senate Democrat to support his bill for it to pass. Well, earlier on Thursday, Manchin said that he would not support a spending bill with the top line number larger than one point five trillion. Well, Cinema, she her latest statement followed criticism from prominent progressives who say moderate uh, opponents to the full spending bill have not been clear on their priorities. Critics included Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, one of many progressives who will not vote to approve the one point two trillion dollar bipartisan physical infrastructure deal unless the Senate first passes a spending bill focused on social programs. We need to know what he's a skeptic on so that we can have the conversation with him. He's already made that clear. But Senator Omar, um, Representative Omar, went on to say there has been no clarity in what they actually want, both uh, cinema and mansion. Again, that information has been made known to leadership. The statement from Cinema's office added that Biden and Schumer are fully aware of the senator's priorities, concerns and ideas. And while we do not negotiate through the press because Senator Cinema. Uh, respects the integrity of those direct negotiations. She continues to engage directly in good faith discussions with both President Biden and Senator Schumer to find common ground. So the back and forth continues. Well, the House joined the Senate on Thursday to approve a bill to fund the government through the 3rd of December and avert a government shutdown for now. The House voted 254 to 175, and the bill will now head to President Biden's desk. It's one of several political issues being followed closely by the markets, which have fallen Thursday with uncertainty about the passage of a bipartisan infrastructure bill and the president's reconciliation spending bill. 65 senators voted in favor of the short-term funding bill, which did not include a provision to raise the debt ceiling. 35 no votes were not enough to sink the bill. Uh, which needed 60 votes to pass. 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said that the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills by October 18th if the debt limit is not raised. This vote says we are keeping the government open, sent Majority Leader Chuck Schumer ahead of the vote uh, said, calling it a glimmer of hope. Now the, ha- the House rather has until uh, midnight to send it to the president's desk before the close of the federal government's fiscal year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, we'll talk with Melissa Henson with the Parents Television Council and uh, on the entertainment media's effort to normalize the sexualization of children on screen. And we'll hear from Reverend Johnny Moore, author of The Next Jihad. I want to remind you, the Courageous Legacy Casting Crowns Getaway is uh, coming up. Well, you got a ways to go, but you can enter to win a pretty cool prize. We're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Kendrick Brothers hit movie, Courageous. You can uh, win a getaway to see the Casting Crowns Christmas concert in Grand Prairie, Dallas, uh, Texas, on Friday, December 17th. The prize includes airfare and hotel for two, concert tickets, a Kendrick Brothers movie catalog, and you can enter the Courageous Legacy Casting Crowns getaway on kpdq.com once a day, if you'd like, between now and October 8th. So check that out and uh, go to kpdq.com. Well, Panama is warning of looming Haitian migrant wave. Tens of thousands are on the way. And according to the foreign minister, the recent rush is just the beginning. Nearly 30,000 Haitian migrants have already made their way over the U.S.-Mexico border in recent weeks. But Panama's foreign minister says far more are on the way. And she's been sounding the alarm for months. In a new interview with Axios, Foreign Minister Erica Muñez says that since the beginning of 2021, more than 85,000 Haitians have crossed through Panama and that she believes they will be heading toward the U.S. We're engaged with every single authority that we can think of that we can come across to say, please, let's pay attention to this. So it should not have been a surprise, she says. The Haitians have been coming from Colombia, traveling through the dangerous Darien Gap jungles into Panama before making their way northward toward Central America and Mexico to the U.S. Um, Muñez says... Um, The senior officials from South American countries, Mexico, Canada and the U.S. met in August to address the issue. And she thought it was shocking that this had not happened sooner. Well, she says that she also met with members of Congress and the DHS secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, earlier this week. Um, she told Axios uh, she wants to see additional meetings between the U.S. and other countries in which they can work out plans to better control the volume of people coming through their respective borders. She said Haiti needs to be involved as well in order to uh, get to the root of the problem, which is the assignment given to the vice president. We all have a role to play in this issue, she says, and the regional approach is the correct approach. It is impossible for Panama to solve it on its own. In addition to the 85,000 people that have already made their way to Panama and beyond, uh, she said another 30,000 are waiting in Colombia uh, while Panama is unable to take them uh, take them in. When we receive them on Panamadians uh, on the Panamadian side, uh, they're malnourished. The children are in terrible conditions, so even getting them up to a healthy state takes time. Mayorkas. Um, told Fox News on Sunday that the vast majority of the migrants who had entered the country had been released into the U.S. at the time. He said as many as 12,000 had been released until their court date with 3,000 in detention, 5,500 still awaiting the, the processing of their case. 
Well, an Idaho sheriff uh, to Lawrence Jones, America is losing the war against fentanyl at the southern uh, border. Lawrence Jones reports uh, from Idaho where fentanyl from Mexico is ravaging communities there, particularly at the border. Lawrence Jones is a reporter for Fox and Friends. He headed to Idaho this week, a state that's been ravaged by the opioid crisis. Throughout his visit, he met with law enforcement officials and the governor who said that they're fighting an uphill battle to stop fentanyl. Uh, which is coming across the southern border from reaching their state. U.S. Customs and Border Protection have reported more than 1.5 million illegal border uh, crossings uh, during the fiscal year 2021, a figure that has not yet included the number of illegal encounters during the month of September. While in Idaho, he met with Canyon County Sheriff uh, who recalled an incident where officers searched someone and the officers inhaled airborne particles and needed life-saving intervention following the search. Um the uh, sheriff was sharply critical of the president, a stark contrast to former President Trump. I met Mr. Trump, he said, twice. I was in the White House twice, uh, meeting with him on these issues. He bought us, uh, uh, brought us to the table. This administration, we have none of that. Not only do we not get invited to the table, there is no table because in, my, in their eyes, there is no problem. Well, Donahue said America is losing the war against the drug cartels at the southern border, explaining how the state is feeling the impact despite being nearly 2,000 miles away from the border. Jones uh, spoke with Idaho Governor Brad Little, who's written a letter to the president to fix the border crisis. Little reported that 96 percent of drugs coming into the state are from Mexico. It's bad and it's getting worse because it's getting more and more abundant and it's cheaper which poses a serious problem as well. Idaho State Police Captain John Kempf has had to make tough calls to family members to let them know that they have lost a loved one to the deadly drug. The people that are manufacturing this fentanyl, they're bringing this drug across the border and that uh, and that are selling it absolutely know that it kills people. The Drug Enforcement Administration on Monday issued a rare public safety alert warning Americans of an alarming increase in deadly, uh, deadly fake prescription pills containing fentanyl flooding the country. In its first such alert in six uh, six years, the agency said the majority of the counterfeit pills found in the U.S. are being manufactured in Mexico with the help of chemicals supplied by China. Over 9.5 million phony pills have been seized uh, so far this year, uh, more than the last two years combined. And those are just the pills that have been seized. They emphasize that police officers are saying they can arrest themselves uh, out of the problem and that the flow must be stemmed at the Mexican border. Senator Josh Hawley plans to introduce legislation holding social media companies accountable for the harm they cause children. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley is introducing legislation. It would establish a federal tort against social media companies in an attempt to hold them accountable if they cause bodily or mental injuries to children. Like Big Tobacco, before it, Big Tech pushes products it knows are harmful, a spokesperson for Hawley said in a press release explaining the legislation. At a Senate hearing last week, a Facebook representative would not even say in response to questioning by the senator that using Instagram is safe. Social media companies should not be allowed to continue profiting from exploiting children, end quote. Well, the Missouri Republicans' legislation uh, comes after a Wall Street Journal report showed that Facebook owns uh, Facebook's own internal uh, documents admit that the products, including Instagram, harm the mental health of children. We make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls, read 
uh, a part of the documents. Teens told us that they don't like the amount of time they spend on the app, but feel like they have to be present. They often feel addicted and know that uh, what they're seeing is bad for their mental health, but feel unable to stop themselves, read another section of the report. Facebook's internal research shows that Instagram was particularly harmful for teens with 13 percent of British and 6 percent of American users who've experienced thoughts of suicide, saying they could trace their thoughts back to Instagram. Now, certainly big tech uh, perhaps plays a role in pre- uh, providing the platform, but parents who have ultimate oversight over their uh, sons and daughters certainly must play a, a greater role in limiting the access and time these young people spend on these platforms as well. In other developments, YouTube is banning all anti-vaccine content they say contributes to misinformation. Meanwhile, TikTok has surpassed 1 billion monthly active users globally. Jay Leno on cancel culture and rules of comedy says, if uh, if you don't conform to them, you're out of the game. A GOP rep hit an out-of-the-park home run in yesterday's congressional baseball game. And yes, there was a congressional baseball game yesterday. Senator Chuck Schumer says uh, raising the debt ceiling through majority vote under reconciliation would be risky. And a new plant to ease the global chip shortage may be arriving in Texas. Virgin Galactic says the FAA has cleared it for further flights. And Amazon has settled with workers alleging allegedly fired for criticizing their working conditions. More on that to come. I'm almost certain you're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We need to take a quick break. I also want to remind you, Melissa Henson with Parents Television Council will join me at the top of the hour in our second hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing to look at some of the day's news. In the second hour, we'll talk with Melissa Henson about normalizing the sexualization of children on screen. And we'll talk with uh, Reverend Johnny Moore, author of The Next Jihad. Senator Manchin says reconciliation must include the Hyde Amendment. Otherwise, he said it's dead on arrival. And as for the additional $3.5 trillion in spending, he said, what I have made clear to the president and Democratic leaders is that spending trillions more on new and expanded government programs, we can't even pay for essential programs like Social Security and Medicare, is the definition of fiscal insanity. AT&T is the latest big company to mandate vaccinations, and they won't give the option of getting tested weekly. Meanwhile, New York is having a doctor and nurse shortage as they fire doctors and nurses who aren't vaccinated. President Biden's policies are leading to skyrocketing uh, energy prices. OPEC and Russia are gradually ramping up supply, but U.S. oil production remains 15 percent below pre-pandemic levels. About 20 percent of production in the Gulf of Mexico remains knocked out by Hurricane Ida. Even before the storm, U.S. oil and gas producers were curtailing investment amid a hostile political climate. Meanwhile, permits issued by the Interior Department for drilling on federal land declined to 171 in August from 671 in April. Democrats' $3.5 trillion-plus spending bill includes royalty and fee increases that would make U.S. oil and gas producers globally in rather uncompetitive. Less um, U.S. production will make global oil and gas prices higher for longer than necessary.
Well, the NBA plans to withhold pay for unvaccinated players. They were vacillating just days ago. The NBA says players who miss games because uh, cities require players to be vaccinated will have pay withheld. NBA player Jonathan Isaac explains quite well why, having had the virus already, he should not be required to get the vaccination. But there are no exceptions to this rigid rule. An Oregon school district has banned teachers from politically controversial symbols in the classroom. And the majority of veterans say President Biden did a poor job in the Afghanistan exit, with 60 percent giving a negative response. Molly Hemingway says those horrible results for Biden were even after the Pew pollster gave vets three options for a positive response, fair, good and excellent, and just one for bad or poor. Let's work on hiding the the, uh, biases a bit better in our poll questions. Akira Libu says NBC News reported that as of May, some 20,000 Afghans had applied for the special immigrant visas. When their families are included, the total eligible for such protection is at least 70,000. All this means that those who need and deserve our protection most have been abandoned, even as the vast majority of Afghan evacuees brought to this country are completely unvetted. It's just another way the administration has managed to betray both American and our allies in the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. A growing percentage of Americans oppose men competing as women, where it was uh, once 50 percent. It has jumped to 61 percent as people realize the natural and uh, insane consequences. Inflation causes Dollar Tree to break from the company name and they will increase items to over a dollar. That's kind of a sad into an institution. Chuck Schumer has announced an agreement on the continuing resolution to prevent the government shutdown. And House Democrats passed a bill to raise the debt limit, but it's likely to bite the dust in the Senate. Calling the president's plan fiscal insanity, Manchin hammers home his opposition. Kirsten Cinema, she goes full John McCain, testing the patience of her own party. And Nancy Pelosi could postpone the infrastructure vote, which is scheduled for this evening. Democrats are sneaking an OSHA enforcement provision into the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill that most members will not read. Amazingly, violations of the Biden vaccine mandate could now cost upwards of $700,000. Pentagon leaders blame the State Department for the chaotic Afghanistan evacuation of civilians. And General Milley warned there is a real possibility of an al-Qaeda and ISIS resurgence in Afghanistan by spring. More than 100 Americans are being denied entry into the U.S. after evacuating Kabul. And the U.S. is intensifying Talks to use Russian bases for Afghan counterterrorism opportunities or operations. The Border Patrol has uh, broken the all-time apprehension record in 2021 and counting. Panama's foreign minister said we warned Biden about the Haitian migrant crisis and there are 60,000 more coming. Dr. Anthony Fauci, Fauci rather, has once again revised the definition of fully vaccinated. And in something of a um, crash landing, United Airlines Uh, plans to fire almost 600 employees over the vaccine mandate. YouTube oligarchs are cracking down on anti-vaccine videos banning major accounts, and no one outside of China will be allowed to attend the 2022 Winter Games in Beijing. Well, off-putting, Kamala Harris hires spin doctors to shore up her long-term planning uh, vis-a-vis her 2024 presidential aspirations and the congressional baseball game, which the GOP won, by the way, as noted, uh, 19 paragraphs into the story in the Washington Post came across as tone deaf as Congress comes um, dangerously close 
to uh, its big deadlines, which they are likely to miss. The Democrat push to expand the government and inject race alienates 2022 swing voters. We'll see how that uh, plays out in the midterm elections. Well, on this day in history, 1777, the Continental Congress is forced to flee in the face of advancing British forces. They move to York, Pennsylvania. 1846, Boston dentist William Morton uses ether as an anesthetic for the first time as he extracts an ulcerated tooth from a merchant. 1939, the first college football game to be televised is shown on experimental station W2. XBS in New York as Fordham University defeats Waynesburg College 34 to 7. 1954, the first nuclear powered submarine, the USS Nautilus, is commissioned by the U.S. Navy. 1962, James Meredith, a black student, is escorted by federal marshals to the campus of the University of Minnesota, uh, Mississippi, rather, where he would enroll for classes the next day. Meredith's presence sparked rioting that claimed two lives. 2001, under threat of U.S. military strikes, Afghanistan's hardline Taliban rulers say explicitly for the first time that Osama bin Laden is still in the country and that they know where his hideout is located. On this day in history, 2014, California Governor Jerry Brown signs the nation's first statewide ban on single-use plastic bags at grocery and convenience stores. And finally, 2018, U.S. and Canadian officials announce an agreement for Canada to take part in a revamped North American free trade deal with the U.S. and Mexico. The new agreement would be called the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. Well, some things you should know about the tax increase bill that's currently being debated. Congressional Democrats uh, this week finally unveiled the legislative text of the largest tax increase in more than 50 years. The goal of the proposal is to put more of the economy's resources under the control of politicians and bureaucrats rather than the private sector. Now, the uh, things that you need to know about the president's and congressional Democrats tax increases uh, we'll talk about in just a moment, but Congressional Democrats this week unveiled that uh, text, um, and this is a tax increase uh, that hasn't been seen in 15, uh, 50 years. It weighs in at more than 880 pages, so it's no wonder they've attempted to uh, keep the details of the so-called Build Back Better Act under wraps. Whenever the government spends money, it spends somebody else's money, that is to say, a lot of your hard-earned money. With more than $2 trillion in tax increases, the bill is more than four times Obamacare's $500 billion in tax hikes, and those tax increases are meant to fund a costly and controversial spending agenda that's meant to reshape the American economy and permanently expand government control over many aspects of the American people's lives. The goal of the proposal is to put more of the economy's resources under uh, the control of politicians and Washington. Uh, it would reduce wages, cost jobs, harm economic growth, cut investment, increase prices and harm working American families. Uh, some of the uh, things to be aware of. Number one, it violates uh, the president's pledge. It hikes taxes on earners um, of $50,000 and above. Now, the president has repeatedly stated that his tax package would not increase taxes on people earning less than $400,000 a year. The official scorekeeper of the, at the Joint Committee on Taxation 
uh, show that the Build Back Better Act would, in fact, raise taxes on middle-income Americans. Under the proposal, taxes would go up for families bringing home $50,000 or more per year, far below what the president has promised. That should come as no surprise. It's simply impossible to fund the size of government that this plan is proposing without major tax hikes on middle-class Americans. Even confiscating all of the income of all businesses and all high-income taxpayers would not pay uh, for the promises made in this legislation. And that result comes even as the uh, methodology used by the Joint Committee on Taxation for its analysis tips the scale in a way that uh, misleadingly shows a lower tax burden by counting hundreds of billions in government spending on welfare benefits as counting against people's taxes. And while scorekeepers should be clear about the effects of uh, transfer payments, Misleadingly classifying checks from the government as a tax cut results in an analysis showing some people paying a negative average tax rate, which is illogical. So beware of even the official uh, numbers. Make no mistake, this uh, uh, gimmick obscures the full tax burden of this bill. Now, we need to take a break here, but when we uh, return, we'll continue to look at some of the uh, the highlights, if you will, of the president's um of the president's plan, the tax increase bill. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about uh, what you need to know about the uh, tax increase bill that's currently being debated in Washington, the degree to which we don't know because they're among the Democrats, there isn't uh, total agreement as of yet. Well, it makes individual tax rates and marriage penalties uh, a bit higher. Uh, the Build Back Better Act would increase the top marginal tax rate for individuals to 46.4 percent. Now, the top bracket would rise 39.6% from 37%. It would also add a substantial marriage penalty. The higher taxes would apply to individuals earning $400,000, but apply to married couples at $450,000. The bill would add a new 3% surtax for all taxpayers earning more than $5 million. And that comes on top of the 3.8% surtax on high earners put in place by Obamacare. Now, these proposals are premised on the notion that high earners don't pay their fair share of taxes. The U.S. tax code is already extremely progressive. In 2018, the top 1% of earners uh, brought home 21% of income and paid 40% of all federal income taxes, while the bottom 50% paid only 3% of taxes. So I don't know how you define fair share, but that gives you some indication of where it stands at this point. Well, it raises taxes on pass-through businesses. Now, I'm... I have to admit, I don't fully understand what a pass-through business is, but increasing the top marginal income tax rate, the bill would also dramatically increase taxes on American small businesses, which typically file a pass-through, file as pass-throughs and pay taxes through the individual income tax system. Now, this plan would also limit the Section 199A deduction for certain pass-through businesses and would impose the Obamacare net investment income tax on many pass-throughs as well. Now, both of these would work with the uh, other tax increases in the bill to expand the tax code's double taxation of investment and savings. These proposals would work to double tax the portion of a business's spending uh, that is on inputs to production. The bill would also increase taxes on capital gains that tends to come up every other year. Uh, The bill would increase the top capital gains tax rate from 20 percent to 25 percent. These are not actually taxes on wealthy Americans. Instead, they're 
uh, duplicative layer of taxation on the added value of business activity. That would stunt the ability of our economy to invest in expanding business operations and job opportunities. Now, that barrier to investment and growth would also make it dramatically harder to start a new business. Well, this tax hike would arbitrarily secure the position of monopolies and apply destructive pressure to small businesses. And additionally, the taxes directly harm the efforts of Americans to save their own for their own retirement. And that with the looming threat of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security running out of funds. Well, additional provisions in this bill that limit the ability to save and IRAs would have similar effects, stifling retirement savings, decreasing the uh, economy-wide investment in future productivity. It also... um Its corporate tax rate is higher than uh, communist China's corporate tax rate. The bill would increase the federal uh, corporate tax rate to 26.5 percent, more than the European average of 19.99 percent and more than even the 25 percent rate of communist China. Ours would be 26.5 percent. What's more, these taxes are felt directly by all Americans. Business taxes necessarily show up through reduced wages, increased prices to consumers and through diminished investment in expanding operations and employment. Now, both the White House press secretary and the president have said it's um, immoral for businesses to pass the cost along to consumers. But what other um, options do they have? Additionally, these taxes aren't, uh, as has been claimed, just on the corporate income. The tax code treats um, many legitimate costs of doing and expanding business as as though they were profits and taxes them as well. Now, that would be akin to taxing a farmer on his purchase of seeds or an artist on the purchase of paint. Well, these taxes are felt twice, once by diminishing the number of seeds planted or paint purchased, and secondly, through smaller harvests and fewer paintings created. Well, this isn't just a careless byproduct of the policies. It's um, it's the goal. Double taxing the cost of doing and expanding business subtly interferes with private sector development, paving the way for central planners to decide how our economy is um, organized and develops. Any tax system that directly taxes both the inputs to production and the results of those inputs unduly penalizes investment in the future. And these tax policies that are being proposed do nothing to make people pay their fair share. They simply stifle the private sector. As Winston Churchill put it best, ensure the equal sharing of miseries. It also penalizes international trade. The bill would heavily penalize international trade, including the imports of vital raw materials to U.S. industries and exports of American products around the globe. One example, the legislation would dramatically reduce the global intangible low taxed income and foreign derived intangible income tax deductions. Well, this pair of tax deductions, tax deductions, rather, offsets the burdensome U.S. tax system so that firms are less incentivized to uh, park assets and do business outside of the United States. Also, the global intangible low-taxed income deduction works with many other business deductions uh, that the bill would repeal or limit to offset tax paid uh, overseas and to allow even-handed tax treatment to international trade. Well, there's more to that, but I'll move on. It also includes a massive IRS slush fund, which is incredible. The bill would give the Internal Revenue Service a lump sum payment of $79 billion, which it would be allowed to spend over the next decade on undefined strengthening tax enforcement activities and increasing voluntary compliance, expanding audits and other enforcement activities. 
Uh, That would effectively be a slush fund six times the IRS entire annual budget. The IRS had $13 billion budget in 2021, including $5 billion for nearly 35,000 enforcement agents. There simply is no plausible way for the scandal-ridden and union-dominated agency to absorb so much extra funding and power while avoiding waste, fraud, and abuse. Well, this slush fund raises the risk of returning to a politicized IRS. The IRS has a decade-long history of overreaching and uh, abusing its power, from the collecting of a list of enemies of the Nixon administration to attempting to um, fire a whistleblower who participated in a series of hearings on IRS abuse in the Clinton administration, to the infamous targeting scandal under the Obama administration, to the lack of confidential taxpayer records and associating the teaching of the Bible with a political party this year. Well, the president has even proposed requiring financial institutions to report to the IRS on the activities of every financial account with $600 or more, a major invasion of privacy. It would impose billions of dollars in costs that will have a disproportionately adverse impact on small financial institutions, much of which will be borne by consumers. And while it isn't part of the Ways and Means bill yet, some senators have discussed including it. Now, to be clear, everyone should pay the taxes that he or she legally owes. But the best way to encourage compliance is to simplify the tax code and reduce the burden of the taxes. It's also uh, it's corporate welfare. Central planning through the tax code is part of the legislation as well. And while the Build Back Better Act massively increases taxes to fund more government spending that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says will transform our economy, the bill also doubles down on political central planning through the tax code. Favored liberal groups and corporations that hew the uh, uh, the left-wing agenda stand to gain thanks to dozens of new generous tax credits. And if you happen to be a union, you will be given preference as well. Uh, implementing provisions of the Green New Deal is a significant focus of the Build Back Better Act with $235 billion in tax incentives for green energy. There's even a $1,500 refundable tax credit for electric bicycles, which are undoubtedly less green than similar human-powered bicycles. Well, the bottom line, our tax system should be simple, transparent, fair, not uh, pick winners and losers based on politically motivated agendas. That's not what this legislation does. The bill is a return to the a tried and true tactics of, well, quite frankly, the left, namely to use the tax code to obscure payments to favored interests and to claim they can fund it all on the backs of business and the wealthy. They want you to believe that these taxes are far enough away from you that you'll never see them. In reality, these uh, tax burdens will fall on every American family and every American business. They will burden our nation today and mortgage our nation's future tomorrow. The unavoidable truth is that all these taxes will be felt through diminished purchasing power, through slower economic, job and wage growth. Um, To implement central planning through overt regulation alone, that's what they need to do. The bill's doubling down on multiple layers of taxation on private investment will heavily penalize the work of Americans to build the future. And that would leave the government as the de facto decider of how our economy is organized and at whose expense. Now, these taxes can only result in larger um, direct taxation of Americans, a reduction of wages, increasing prices while fewer products are offered, and diminished investment in future job opportunities. Finally, I think it's fair to say that these taxes will strike at the heart of our ability to live in a free and prosperous society. And make no mistake, the blank check proponents want to, uh, will have uh, your signature at the bottom. We will, regardless of uh, where you think you stand, 
uh, on the continuum of who pays uh, taxes or earns the most, your name will be on the bottom of that check along with so many others. Well, there's so much more to, to talk about today, and we're just about out of time in this um, this hour. So I'm not going to start something else. I'll just mention that the defund police movement, entirely different subject, um, is responsible for a record 30% surge in murders across the uh, the country, 30% increase in murders in 2020, the largest single-year jump since the FBI began recording crime statistics six decades ago. The change in murder was widespread, a national phenomenon and not a regional one. Murders rose over 35% in cities with populations over 250,000, that report uh, reported full data, and it also rose over 40% in cities with 100,000 to 250,000 people and around 25% of cities under 25,000. Just uh, a quick note. Coming up, we'll talk with Melissa Henson on uh, the media's effort to normalize the sexualization of children in ways you probably could not even imagine. And we'll hear from Reverend Johnny Moore, author of The Next Jihad. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. While writing for The Washington Examiner, Parents Television and Media Council President Tim Winter, he revealed entertainment media has helped to normalize the sexualization of children on screen. And he offers a prime example of how Netflix program Big Mouth is grooming children for sexual abuse and calls for society to stand against this kind of entertainment. I have to tell you, when I read through um, the PTC's writing on this subject and some of the explicit examples of what's on the program, I was shocked and wondered how on earth we could talk about this on air. Well, in a research report, the Parents Television and Media Council details how the Netflix program Big Mouth, uh, an animated TV series about middle schoolers depicting 12 and 13 year old children in sexual situations and engaging in sexual dialogue, left me dumbfounded. Well, Melissa Henson joins us now. She's with the uh, PTC on the entertainment media's efforts and what we can do to say, no, enough is enough. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I wish you and I were talking about lollipops and (laughs) bubble gum, but this is a serious issue. And I have to tell you, as I read through some of the examples, I was mortified that this is actually being uh, shown. It's a program for adults, but features kids. Can you kind of explain it to us? Yeah, well, and and that's uh, sort of an ambiguity that they, they play around with a lot. Um, it is, as you mentioned in the introduction, it's an animated series about 12, 13-year-old children. Um, it is rated TVMA, however, and it airs on, on Netflix. So if you have parental controls in place that would block that content, um, you have less need to worry about your kids accidentally seeing it. But again, it's a cartoon, and it's a cartoon about 12 and 13-year-olds. Um, who is more likely to be interested in a cartoon? Probably kids, right? Mm-hmm. And who's more likely to be interested in a program about going through puberty and about tw- being about the experience of a twelve and thirteen year old? Not many thirty six year olds that I know are interested in reliving those years. So, as I say, this is a this is an ambiguity that they are are kind of deliberately playing with. Yeah, absolutely. And for the entertainment, presumably of adults, 
uh, using children, that in and of itself should shock the conscience. But the fact that kids could also see it, and it is so explicit, things that I couldn't even have imagined are on the screen, and the language that these kids are using and the references they're making, it really is shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the 10 episodes of the fourth season, we counted more than 200 uses of the F word. Um, So you're hearing a profanity like boom, 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 one right after another, less than two seconds elapsed between, you know, one, one profanity and the next one. So the language is explicit. But what I found particularly shocking about this show is um, the fact that, you know, they're depicting um, the private parts of these child characters. And again, it's animated. It's a cartoon. You know, we're, we're not talking about real children here. Um, but the fact that they're normalizing um, the, the, the representation of, you know, these, these children in this way, I find very disturbing. Yeah. And again, we can't, um, because of the nature of this program and the fact that we're on radio, we can't give a, uh, an apt description of some of what is fairly common on this uh, this program. So I'm, I'm sorry that we can't do that. On the other hand, I I don't want to make those kinds of references. Right. Um, right. This is one program. Are we seeing this more widespread or is this limited to this particular Netflix program, which certainly isn't the first to exploit uh, children? This one in an animation, uh, animated program, others using actual uh, people uh, depicted as yeah. young people. Yeah, uh, I mean, so, you know, the the exploration of those awkward in-between years is certainly not new, and it's been done, and it's been done very successfully in the past. You know, we, Kim mentions in the the um, op-ed, in the Wonder Years, and in fact, I think ABC has a reboot of the Mm -hmm. Wonder Years right now, Um, uh, or Lizzie McGuire. I mean, so these themes, they're, they're sort of ripe for exploration, you know, because these are years that many people remember very vividly, um, either, you know, with some degree of discomfort or, you know, with, with happy memories. But, but, but there's a lot of emotional turmoil. There's a lot that goes on with being 12 and 13 years old. Um, this show does not explore it in a way that is responsible, in a way that is safe, in a way that protects and honors the innocence of children. Um, it is highly exploitative. And uh, unfortunately, this is a trend that we are seeing increasingly, um, especially with the rise of streaming video, uh, because there's just so much content out there that a lot of it just sort of flies under the radar. And a lot of parents are just not aware of it because, you know, how are you going to find out about it? How can you keep track of or tabs on hundreds and hundreds of mm-hmm. programs that are available on all these streaming services? Um, and the fact that it, it's a cartoon, I, I think that they use that in order to get away with a lot more than they otherwise would be able to get away with. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that we're not just talking about explicit content uh, that is verbal, but we're talking about episodes uh, with visual depictions of sexual behavior uh, including depictions of 12 and 13 year old characters engaged in sexual conduct alone yeah. with others and making reference to other adults. So highly right. inappropriate. Now, you're right. It's just overwhelming. And the, the wave after wave of this kind of offensive programming um, offends the, the, the soul. But what can be done about it? I mean, obviously, I don't have to subscribe to Netflix. The programming is going to be uh, going to continue to be made. What can we do in response to what should be an outrage to any adult. 
Yeah. Um, well, we would we would strongly encourage you know if if you're of a mind to do so, if you have a Netflix subscription, you know, cancel it and let your reasons for for canceling be known uh, to the folks at, at Netflix. Um, you can hop on social media and leave a comment on their Facebook page or on their Twitter account um, because. Uh, um, you know, that, that's, that's a very direct way to raise your concerns uh, in the modern age with any corporation is, is leaving comments on their social media pages because they want to try to sweep those things under the rug and it's harder to do with social media. Um, but beyond that, uh, we would, we would, um, we've got a number of petitions on our website. You can go to parentstv.org um, to sign any number of petitions. We are encouraging state and local lawmakers and even federal lawmakers to take a look at this program to see if it isn't indeed violating any um, laws regarding child pornography or child exploitation or child endangerment. As far as you know, does it matter to them if it's using actual uh, youth actors as opposed to um, animated figures engaged in inappropriate activity and language? Does it make a difference yeah, um, to the regulators? I, I don't know. I don't know that there's an awful lot of uh, case law or precedent um, to sort of direct uh, law enforcement agencies one way or the other. Um, so um, we're, we're, we're certainly happy to have them take a look regardless of, you know, um, whether it's animated or live mm-hmm. action and, and determine if, if there, there are any laws being violated here. Do they tend to be sympathetic or what do you expect the outcome to be? Well, I, I, it, it's hard to know. Um, I, I would probably expect to see more action at the state and local level than at the federal level. Uh, I mean, it's been many years since we've seen any meaningful prosecution of obscenity laws uh, from the federal government. Uh, the DOJ. Um, but uh, as we saw last year when Netflix released Cuties, mm-hmm. uh, there are state attorney generals out there that are willing to um, stand in the gap and take action when the federal government refuses to. Now, this uh, you said the rating on this one at least uh, gives some indication of the kind of content. So parents who have uh, some parental controls would uh, be able to prevent their uh, children from seeing this programming. Right. Um, and um, Netflix, uh, to their credit, I suppose you could say, um, does seem to have fairly robust parental controls as long as you're using them um, and it's important to use them. So um, beyond being able to set um, uh, age thresholds, uh, so if you have your age threshold set to PG-13, for example, and the child tries to watch a program that's rated TVMA, uh, they're going to have to p- punch in a, a PIN password in order to uh, get past those parental controls in order to watch the TVMA content. So by all means, do use those parental controls. Um, my understanding is that Netflix has added some additional um, precautions um, to enable you to remove titles from the, um, from the menu screens. So your child can't even see it, doesn't even see it as an option. And I would also encourage folks to take advantage of those parental controls. Yeah, well, I'm certainly concerned that young kids would have access to that. But I'm equally concerned that adults would find this entertaining. It's inappropriate for any age level. I so appreciate the work of uh, the Parents Television Council. And uh, you're making this available, um, the petition online and just information to help us identify things that we need to be wary of. Melissa Henson, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
Again, uh, Melissa is with the Parents Television Council uh, and uh, I should say Parents Television and Media Council on the entertainment media's effort to normalize the sexualization of children. Up next, we're going to hear from Reverend Johnny Moore. The next jihad, stop the Christian genocide in Africa. That's right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I've been looking forward to this conversation. The next jihad is the title of the book. Well, in an appeal for religious freedom and human rights, my guest and his co-author, both faith leaders and self-described freelance diplomats, Reverend Johnny Moore, my guest and his co-author, Rabbi Abraham Cooper, they released their new book, The Next Jihad. They expose the everyday horrors that Christian believers face in Nigeria, and the authors spotlight the enduring atrocities of religious persecution and the cost of global inaction. The book is rooted in firsthand testimonials and their on-the-ground experiences. The Next Jihad forewarns us about the dire but largely disregarded threat of terrorism seeking to eradicate Christians in Africa, either by forced conversion to Islam or by murder. The authors uh, contrasting religious backgrounds, more an evangelical Christian and uh, Rabbi Cooper, an Orthodox Jew, make this multi-faith collaboration an especially powerful argument for safeguarding religious tolerance and our shared human um, rights. Reverend Johnny Moore is a noted speaker, author, and human rights activist. He served as the president of Congress of Christian Leaders and is the founder of Kairos Company, one of America's leading boutique communications cons- uh, consultancies. He also is best known for his extensive multi-faith work on the intersection of faith and foreign policy. He serves as a presidential uh, appointee to the United States Commission for International Religious Freedom and sits on many boards. And if I went through the very long list, we wouldn't have time for our interview, so I will leave it at that. But I am just delighted to have you with us, Reverend Johnny Moore. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Georgine. Good to be with you. Well, first of all, let me ask you about your collaboration. You are an evangelical Christian. You've uh, collaborated with a, an Orthodox rabbi, Abraham Cooper. How did the two of you come to this book and this subject? Well, I, I really refer to Rabbi Cooper as my mentor. You know, he, he's uh, someone who's influenced my life uh, in, a, in a great way for a long period of time. Uh, but I met him uh, back in 2017, I believe, maybe late 2016, when the Simon Wiesenthal Center uh, honored uh, a project that I was involved in to help rescue Christians from uh, Iraq and Syria. And so I, I, I ended up uh, receiving their Medal of Valor. But aside from that, that single event, I, I found Rabbi Cooper to be literally one of the uh, wisest people I've met on the planet, a human rights activist for 50 years. And we began to collaborate all over the world. And actually, Georgine, it was Rabbi Cooper, the Orthodox Jew, that asked me, uh, Johnny Moore, the evangelical Christian, when I was going to go to Nigeria because what was because of all that was happening in Nigeria. So we decided we'd go together. Oh, wonderful. In the introduction, you asked the question, what's going on in Africa? And it's an apt question because most of us don't know. You write that Af- Africa is a continent that takes up much of our globe, but so little of our minds here in the West. It's an incomparably important place on our planet, yet too rarely captures the world's attention. Normally, it does so only during tragedy. There is a tragedy going on right now, a genocide, if you will, that most of us are unaware of. Yeah, and it's been going on for a long time. Uh, back, back when ISIS was at its height in Iraq and Syria in, in 2015, more Christians were dying in northeast Nigeria than, uh, 
Christians or Yazidis that were dying in in Iraq and Syria. So, so this is it's not a new crisis. Mm -hmm. It's an ongoing crisis that seems to be escalating and the numbers are growing and the world is becoming increasingly indifferent. And, you know, I'm not sure why people won't pay attention to it. But one of the convictions that I have is that the the best way of sort of awakening the conscience of the world is to tell the stories of the victims. And so right before COVID-19 shut down the world, uh, Rabbi Cooper and I spent several days in, in Abuja meeting with dozens and dozens of victims, hearing stories that I knew would be bad. But I, I got to tell you, Georgie, it was much, much worse than I even knew. And it does beg the question, why aren't we hearing about these stories? Uh, the mainstream media's focus is on a lot of different things. We tend to think about terrorism in the Middle East. There's been a national election. We're in the middle of a pandemic. These are kind of current reasons one might uh, look to as to why we're not hearing about what's happening in Nigeria, for example. But how do you explain the the ignorance, even of the, the Christian community in general, of what's happening there and the threat uh, not only to Nigerians and other uh, African nations, but the threat to Europe, the United States and other parts of the world. And, and when you add on uh, on top of it, you know, when the media does report on it, they tend to report on it uh, in a in a strange way where they, they won't talk about the religious violence. They'll, they'll chop the violence off to climate change or to conflicts between herders and farmers. But they won't mention you know, the fact that this is. Uh, often religiously religiously motivated and and, you know, and by the way it, it's important to all of us i mean nigeria is the largest co- country the most populated country in africa it has the 10th largest oil reserves in the world it has the largest economy on the continent and the countries surrounding it all have their own sort of terrorist insurgencies and so what's quietly happening on the great continent and its uh, perhaps most influential country is a catastrophe that 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 could not only uh, you know un, 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 you know destabilize that that nation it could destabilize that whole part of of the African continent which would make the Syrian crisis look look insignificant uh, compared to what could could happen there but more importantly it's the individual lives you know like the uh, the seminarian Michael Nadi who earlier this year at 18 years old was kidnapped in the middle of the night found dead on the side of the road. And uh, in the, this was a rare circumstance where they actually caught the perpetrator. And the perpetrator, when, when he was asked why he killed him, he said he killed him because Michael just kept sharing his faith with him and he wouldn't stop and it became annoying. And so he decided to, quote, send him to an early grave. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Michael Nadis. I mean, hundreds hundreds of villages, all the churches destroyed, all the homes burned to the ground, all the animals stolen. Uh, circumstances that particularly alarmed uh, Rabbi Cooper, uh, whom, whom I've written the next jihad with, because they, they segmented out communities. They stopped cars on the side of the road and Muslims were freed and Christian men were killed on the spot and the young women were, were trafficked. This is happening every day, every single day including today, right now. Let's talk now about the perpetrators. Who are the perpetrators? What motivates them? And how are they uh, being confronted by anyone to, to prevent this from expanding or moving forward? Yeah, there's, there's three groups. The, the first is Boko Haram. You know, that, that's the group that most people have, have, have heard about. Uh, ironically enough, you know, back in uh, 2013, 2014, the Obama administration, for some strange 
strange reason, refused to designate Boko Haram a terrorist organization when they were beheading people, you know, in the in the name of their of of, of their religious beliefs. Boko Haram is a is been been with us for a long time and hasn't been dealt with for a long time. Then there's ISIS in West Africa, ISIS attempting to reestablish itself in those countries. And then finally, and perhaps most alarmingly, there's a segment of Africa's largest tribe. The, the tribe is called the Fulani. There are mm-hmm. 17 million of them alone in Nigeria. And most Fulani are good, wonderful people. But there's a there's a small group of them, uh, but a small group and a very large group of, 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 of people who are appropriating the tactics of Boko Haram and ISIS in West Africa in the center part of Nigeria. So, so this terrorism used to be isolated to the northeast of the country in a you know, rel- relatively small area of a couple of states. But now in the whole center of the country, you have these militant uh, Fulani, a segment of these Fulani tribespeople, you know, who are yelling Allahu Akbar as they attack villages in, in the middle of the night, killing thousands and thousands and thousands of people, displacing tens of thousands more. And ironically enough, uh, in my research, you know, we, we, we discovered that um, on a number of occasions, you know, forensic evidence has been left behind, like rudimentary cell phones from the Fulani militants. And on one of the cell phones uh, was the phone number of a number of, of senior people in the police forces and armed services in, in the country. And so, you know, at a minimum, this great ally of the United States, an important country that we love very much, you know, has has severe corruption, uh, which is inhibiting uh, the the prosecution of these perpetrators of of genocide of ethnic cleansing. I mean that that's what they're that, that's the ring. They, they want to take out every Christian in the country and every Muslim that stands in their way. We're talking with Reverend Johnny Moore, who along with Rabbi Abraham Cooper co-authored the next Jihad: Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. And if you have been unaware of what's happening there. This is an excellent book to become aware and the stakes, not only for those who are directly being targeted, but for the rest of the world as well. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Reverend Moore, who along with Rabbi Cooper co-authored The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. Now, our, our temptation is to look at the broad implications of what's happening in Nigeria and elsewhere uh, and to consider how it might somehow be exported uh, outward. But I appreciate that you focus our attention on what's happening to brothers and sisters in Christ on the ground right now, the price they are paying for faithfully following their their faith. And I want to talk about the implications as well, but I think it's important that we look at who's being impacted uh, and targeted by these perpetrators and what they hope ultimately to accomplish. And and to do so, the most important and powerful thing is to to tell their stories. And yes, Georgine, there are a few of them that really touch me. I think there's one girl, uh, pro- probably many people listening to us have heard this name before, that her, her name is Leah Sherabu. So, so Leah was uh, 14 years old, one of 110 young girls that were kidnapped by, by Boko Haram terrorists in, in Nigeria two and a half years ago. When, when Boko Haram kidnapped them, it, it caused a massive, massive political problem in the country you know, for, the, for the ruling government. They negotiated the release of the 110 girls uh, it's just that all the parents were waiting for the girls to be released in the buses, 
And then one parent, Leah's mom, Rebecca, as she tells the story, was looking around and she couldn't find her daughter. And all the other girls were there, but her daughter wasn't there. And she's getting more and more desperate. And she sees one of Leah's friends. So she runs up to Leah's friend. She says, where's Leah? Where's Leah? Where's Leah? And then Leah's friend told her that all of the other girls were freed, but the terrorists wouldn't free Leah because Leah was the only Christian in the group. And Leah refused to convert to Islam. And she said, you can take my life but I will not change my religion. And this little 14-year-old girl with more faith than most pastors I know stared down these terrorists and remains in captivity today just because she would refuse to convert you know, out of, out of Christianity into, into Islam. And there's just story after story after story like that. Uh, you know, early, earlier this year, you know, a, a famous pastor in the country, in the northeast of the country, uh, was, was beheaded on a live video because he would refuse to refuse to convert and he leaves behind a widow and nine children and yet they they hold their testimony as the most important thing in 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 their lives and so i think a lot of people listening to us think that all of this has sort of gone the way of history those terrible years of isis in iraq and syria this is all gone but it isn't gone it's moved to a different part of the world and 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 i'm just telling you if something isn't done, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to affect us all. But, but, but as a believing Christian, you know, I, I have to also say that the strongest, some of the strongest faith I've seen in the world you know, is, isn't in our gigantic churches in the United States of America or in Western Europe. It, it's, it's, in the, it's in the testimonies of these, these everyday Christians in this persecuted part of Africa's most populated country who take their faith seriously and are empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand against those who would seek to destroy their their lives. Um, You write about deadly midnight raids, arson, kidnappings, rapes, forced conversions, overt slaughter. These are horrific stories that one might expect to find in the pages of the Old Testament. And yet in our day, this is what's occurring right now. Uh, Failure to respond to this in some constructive way uh, certainly has implication for those who are suffering. Um, but talk a bit about the, the broader implications if this is permitted to go on unchecked, if the world continues to look away, um, what can we expect as a result? We, we can expect a, a humanitarian catastrophe unlike anything that we've seen. And, and that is saying something, having, having just come through the first decade of the Syrian conflict and we watched how that uh, upheaval affected almost the entire world, you know, and, and especially the neighboring countries, countries in Europe. I mean, and, and here's the thing, like, I, I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, to speak badly about Nigeria. I love Nigeria. I mean, these are amazing people. It's an amazing country. Some of the most incredible people in the world. It's an ally of the United States, a critical ally, and it needs to stay that way. But the government in Nigeria, for whatever reason, is choosing not to take the action necessary and they need to be called out on it and that's one of the reasons why we went it's one of the reasons why we've written written the book and it's not just on the united states to to do something it's also on europe you know the united kingdom gives a million dollars a day a million pounds a day rather you know to to the nigerians it's time for all of the aid money given by the united states and the europeans to be evaluated it's time for the united states and the europeans to send a clear message that if the Nigerian government doesn't fulfill its fundamental responsibility of protecting the innocent, then you know it it, it it's 
going to face consequences for that when it comes to our our relationship. You know, and Georgine, all of this is in a democracy. You know, Nigeria is a democracy. This isn't a totalitarian totalitarian dictatorship. So it's just got to end, and it's got to end right now. And also, you know, it's time for us to pray for these people. I mean, really, really intensely pray for these people. Educate ourselves on the issues. Give to the organizations that are helping those in need. Call our our politicians, Democrat or Republican, and make sure that this is a priority uh, for, for them. Now is the time to act. We will be forced to act if we don't get our act together. Yeah. We're talking about the book, The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. That's perhaps a great place to start to learn about what the situation is and how those who are uh, fellow followers of Jesus, um, how they are suffering. You write about the moral imperative to act, and I think we can all feel that that need to act. What can we uh, What can we do? What can be done to help? Uh, as an average follower of Christ, as an average citizen, um, first of all, we need to be convinced that it's imperative to act. But then what can we do to help that's going to make a difference? Well, and, you know, this, this is what united uh, the rabbi and I. I mean, we're, you know, he's yes. an uh, Orthodox Jew. I'm, a, I'm an evangelical Christian, but we both believe in action. You know, it, compassion requires action. You have to do something about it. You know, and, and in the back of the book, we list a bunch of things that, 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 that can be done. But let me just give, you know, a, a couple of real simple ones. Pray like you hope these people, like you hope someone would pray for you. Educate yourself so you know what's going on, including the stories of the victims. You can tell those those stories. Send an email to your political leader's office today. Just go on the website, find the local leader, and say, "What are you doing about the the crisis in Nigeria?" You know, and and then and then finally, you know, help organizations that are helping helping those in need. You know, the thing about Nigeria is it has a huge Christian population. Every denomination is in Nigeria. The largest assemblies of God communities outside of the United States are in are in Nigeria. Like your church has some connection to the country. Like it's time to help those churches in Nigeria cope with the crises that they're they're facing. Now's now's the time to do it. There are lots of other things that can be done, but those are a, a few quick ones you might remember. Yes, and you'll find them in the book. Let me ask you how the Christian community is faring. Obviously, under this kind of ongoing, relentless pressure and danger, it takes its toll. How is the church in general holding up under this kind of challenge? I mean, this is a miracle, right? I've spent my entire adult life helping persecuted Christians around the world, and I always find, like, I'm the one that's actually helped, you know, in, in the end. I mean, it keeps my faith alive. And I got to tell you, you know, the Nigerian church is strong. You know, I, I met a, a pastor who is on his second burned down church. And he, he, he reminded me of a modern day Apostle Paul. He's not going anywhere. They could, take, they could take his church. They could take any little bit of money he has. They could take his food. They could burn down the building. He's just going to stay caring for those, for those people. So it's a, it's a church that's alive. Well, that's so encouraging. We have a great deal to learn from them, but we also have a great deal we can do to help support them, first by recognizing that moral imperative to act and then to act constructively. Again, the book is titled The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. And let me encourage you to read the book to learn more about what's happening in this this country in Africa. And I think I appreciate, too, that you put it in context that the ripple effect 
if left unchallenged, of what's happening there uh, into Europe and other countries, including our own, is uh, certainly sobering as well. The next jihad. Um, Reverend Johnny Moore, thank you so much for your collaboration with Rabbi Cooper and for taking the time to talk with us about this important book today. Thanks for shining a light on it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. And when we return, we'll talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll try to get some understanding, gain some understanding of the lawsuits that are currently pending that uh, has failed to resolve our election. Uh, is it likely or possible that the the outcome could be overturned uh, from what we've been told uh, is the uh, the current outcome? Or just we'll put it all into perspective. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Air Force apparently doesn't care that a U.S. Air Force reservist is scheduled to retire with full honors and benefits on the 1st of December of this year, since they're mandating that all service members, despite their status, receive the COVID shot. When this reservist arrived at his last training weekend earlier this month, he was ordered to comply with the mandate. He submitted a religious exemption, having only four to five days left to wear his Air Force uniform, having only four to five days left. And this is after a 29 year career of honorable service. Four or five days left to wear the Air Force uniform. Well, soon after he was berated and bullied by the base commander to get the shot. If my December 1st, 2021 retirement is granted, I should not be required to accept the vaccine just to retire or be placed on an administrative hold just to forfeit my service and be punished for not accepting the vaccine, the reservist said. Well, the reservist was has faithfully served his country, as I mentioned, for 29 years, first as an active duty airman, then as a U.S. Air Force reservist. However, based on the U.S. Department of Defense order, every active and reserve military member must get the shots or face dishonorable discharge. Dishonorable, not just discharged, but a dishonorable discharge. Now, this is the worst kind of punishment for someone who sacrificed everything for the sake of, well, our freedom. Well, these brave heroes are being threatened with failure to obey a lawful general order or regulation, the consequence of which is a court martial. Now, to put this in perspective, men and women in the uni- in the uniform in the military are required to take all kinds of vaccinations. Uh, this one is a relatively new one. We don't know if he had an, an exemption for previous vaccinations or shots that are required. We don't know that, uh, but it isn't uncommon for a military member to be required to have a vaccination of a sort or a shot of a sort. Well, the military members are being told there are no uh, religious exemptions and on rare occasions with medical exemptions be approved. So this is pretty much across the board. Only in rare circumstances might a medical exemption be approved. While the Department of Defense order, which came from the president, uh, is not lawful, many observers are suggesting the only FDA approved COVID-19 shot is BioNTech. I think it's called Camaranati or something very like that, but it's not yet available. Well, in addition to military law, refusing to even consider religious exemptions violates the First Amendment and the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a powerful law which the Supreme Court called a super statute. Now, men and women in uniform, those who serve in the military, are in sort of a different category, and I don't know if it is typical for them to be exempted from the kinds of protections that you and I enjoy. 
But again, returning to this story, as you'll recall, in late August, the president's defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, ordered all active and reserve service members to get the shots. By then, the department uh, knew the shots were causing serious heart problems to military members. But apparently that did not matter. On June the 29th, the Defense Health Agency published a report in the Journal of the American Medical Association entitled Myocarditis Following Immunization with MRNA COVID-19. The study reports that previously healthy service members developed myocarditis, pericarditis. It's a severe and life-threatening inflammation of the heart within an average of just four days of receiving their first shot of either Pfizer, BioNTech or Moderna. One day later, Dr. Matthew Oster, who serves on Biden's CDC COVID-19 task force, admitted the shots are causing myocarditis in young men aged 16 to 30, adding it does appear that mRNA vaccines may be a new trigger for myocarditis, end quote. Well, despite the known dangers these shots are to male service members, the uh, Department of Defense has mandated every person should get injected. No matter their uh, term of service, their rank, honors of tour of duty uh, in the most dangerous places in the world, service members are being threatened with dishonorable discharge for merely requesting a religious exemption. Now, some have even been told that they are will be imprisoned and held in solitary confinement if they refuse the shot. Now, thousands of military service members are being forced to make a major life altering decision regarding their health and, of course, their future. American heroes shouldn't uh, be treated as felons because of their personal medical choices. But that seems to be the case here and now. Now, many are in combat where bullets and bombs are common during their tour of duty. They sleep on dirt and um, through dust storms with no showers for weeks, witness incredible moments of pain, suffering, sometimes even death. They've dedicated their lives to defend freedom while missing births, birthdays, weddings, anniversaries and other important occasions. Well, the chairman of Liberty Council, he's also the founder of Liberty Council, said that never in Liberty Council's 31 year history have we faced such a crisis. Nearly half a million people have uh, uh, have viewed our legal help video. Tens of thousands have submitted legal help request forms and our office is receiving nearly 1000 new requests pleading for help every single day. Many of those are members of our military. These heroes voluntarily gave up everything to defend us and now. We must honor them and not threaten them with dishonorable discharge. And this is a, a an interesting um, mandate that's currently in place. Uh, we know that we're losing significant numbers of teachers, first responders and others who, for a variety of reasons, some who have natural immunity and uh, or who have been advised by their uh, physicians that they are not candidates because of um, medical reasons for the shot. And yet uh, the exemptions are being denied to uh, any number of people uh, with regard to this uh, this vaccine and a dishonorable discharge to individuals to one in particular who served 29 years uh, does not seem to be the appropriate response to his uh, effort to get a religious exemption which has been denied uh, but then to decline the uh, the shot a discharge um, or some kind of extension he's got what four days of service left And uh, that apparently doesn't matter in his case. Now, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not it's even constitutional for this kind of mandate to be in place uh, broadly across the board. Now, again, the military serves under different set of rules. They uh, forfeit some rights that you and I enjoy uh, in order to serve whether or not this is one of them. If if it is lawful, if it's constitutional 
to require a member of the military to take this particular shot, although they are required to take many others in order to serve, particularly in certain places, uh, is not uh, altogether clear to me at this point. But this is just one example among many of individuals whose livelihoods are um, are on the line because of their um, decision not to take the uh, the vaccine. Some of them have medical reasons for doing so. Some have religious reasons for doing so. Others simply have chosen not to move forward with the shot and their livelihood is now at stake. Uh, some have already lost their jobs. Others, there are dates uh, pending in the near future in which that will be the case. Uh, again, it will be interesting to see. There have been some lawsuits filed already. We'll see what happens with those, but that could certainly change everything uh, in the uh, in the near term. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Some sweeping changes to announce to the Georgine Rice Show tomorrow on the program. I'm a little sad about it, but we'll tell you more tomorrow. So join us if you can. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.